Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I'm your other host, Timothy Deal. This is episode eight, and we are in 1992. <gasps> we are in our, within our lifespan. Yeah, or I'm 12 within years old. Within our lifespan. <laughs> within our lifetime. I am 12 years old. Wow, and I am younger, about nine. Well, I guess probably 11, actually. Yeah. Aladdin came out and watched it like six times in the theater. <laughs> 92 is a good year. I don't remember going if I ever went to the theater that year, but I remember a lot of uh, driving around North Carolina playing my original Game Boy. Nice. Because I'd just gotten it for Christmas in 91. I, I feel like 92 and like 95 are just years that stand out, and I don't even know why. They just stick my head like I must have written the numbers a lot or things happened. or uh, Yeah. It was a good year. It was a good year. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, but today's welcome. movie was... This today's movie was... Uh, is? Is. It came out in 92. But right. Today's movie was Unforgiven. <laughs> Starring and directed by Clint Eastwood. <laughs> All right. So, Tim, before we get into the movie itself, tell us what's happening in 1992 in Hollywood. <laughs> Scholars haven't really settled on, I feel like, a name for the age of Hollywood at this point. We're still kind of in it, right? Exactly. I mean, we're a little too close to the history still. I mean, it's weird. 92 is still like... 30 years ago, which is weird. Yes. But, but yeah, it still it still feels fairly new and undefined. But the sort of change that happened with Spielberg and Lucas in the early 80s is still just moving along. Essentially. I've seen this time period called the contemporary era or the blockbuster age. Again, a little less defined. And the historically big studios at this point are increasingly focused on creating blockbuster or tentpole movies mm -hmm. with a smaller portion of their budgets going for art movies, a.k.a. Oscar bait. Some people probably may not designate this entire period. Some people would section off the 90s as kind of a different era from like starting in the 21st century. Yeah. Which makes some sense. You know, beginning of the 21st century, we've got DVDs and a lot more CGI. CGI. And yeah, it's a, it's a, the way you produce movies just changes dramatically. Yeah. But there's still a lot of the foundations for that started in like the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, that being said, the list of top grossing movies in 1992 includes an assortment of film genres, including an animated movie, family comedies, action movies, horror movie, illegal drama, romantic thrillers. So some people would say there is there was more variety in the early 90s than maybe what we have later in this quote-unquote era where we've got lots of superhero movies and block but and action kind of adventure kind of in some ways it's narrowed up even more yeah the the, the blockbuster phenomena has become more and more pronounced maybe yeah time. yeah i mean like i said if you compare the um top 10 of 1992 as opposed to probably what we're going to get in 2012 yeah you'd see a, a stark difference in content for example the top 10 of 1992 features only one superhero movie believe it or not what is it? Batman Returns. Okay. So Batman was the only superhero in town at the time, practically. Yeah. We should also make notes that after the directors of the new Hollywood era, again, Lucas Spielberg, some of those others, they became more integrated into mainstream filmmaking. There was a new crop of independent directors that started in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, these included Spike Lee and Steven Soderbergh in 1989. 
their movies that came that debuted that year were Do the Right Thing and Sex Lies and Videotape, respectively. Okay. Um, and then this year, 1992, saw the film directorial debuts of Quentin Tarantino with his movie Reservoir Dogs and Robert Rodriguez, El Mariachi, in 1992. So these were the, kind of the, some of the beginnings of the current crop of independent filmmakers. And they were helped along by the declining production costs because film production would become more and more cheaper as this era uh, goes on, especially Mm -hmm. when we get into the realm of digital. But even now, it was cheaper at this point than certainly than it was back in the height of the studio system. Yeah, because, I mean, families are having video cameras and doing stuff at this point. So it's scaling down. Yeah. And, of course, the VHS market, which uh, Hollywood had finally embraced in the mid-'80s <laughs> and found it was a great revenue stream for them, uh, it also helped some of these more niche films find life after leaving the theaters. And there's a lot of movies that, like, didn't take off until after the theater. You know, like, oh, I found this in my local movie store, and then everyone watches it, and, like, oh, now it's a classic. Yeah, pretty much. I feel like cult classics became more of a thing after the rise of VHS than before. Because before that, you had to watch it in syndication. Mm-hmm. Or... or- Maybe catch it on TV. I mean, I know yeah. that's how Citizen Kane got popular because TV yeah. viewings. For Same a while. thing with um, It's a Wonderful Life, I think. Yeah, that's true. And maybe even The Wizard of Oz. I mean, Wizard of Oz did well, but it became bigger Big, in people's yeah. eyes because of television. Yep. So, yeah, AHS was another great home market for people. And I feel like I got to mention the indie film scene just because. I've always liked the idea of independent film, but I never really have cared for what most of them choose to do with it. Like, the idea is good, but the subject matter sometimes not something up our alley. Yeah, they tend to go in more explicit material because they can and not necessarily because they should. Yeah. Anyway, but I just wanted to take note of that. Notable films of this year, the top grossing film was a little uh, film called... Aladdin. Yes. My one of my for many, many, many years, my favorite Disney movie of all time. Yeah, I mean, we are in the the height of the Disney Renaissance at this point. Aladdin topped the charts for 1992. The Oscar winners, best film and best director, went to a little movie called Unforgiven. Which we'll tell you more about. So yes, again, Clint Eastwood winning the best director there. Best actor went to Al Pacino for Sense of a Woman. And Best Actress went to Emma Thompson for Howard's End. I have to admit, I've never heard of Howard's End. So it seems like one of those movies that was Oscar bait and then forgotten yeah, about. Yeah, I, I think I've heard of it somewhere and somehow, but I couldn't tell you a thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My other nominations for this week's episode were actually neither of those other movies I just mentioned. They were The Last of the Mohicans. Which I have seen. And Sister Act. Which I have seen. Which I know, surprisingly, I have. I am the one who has never seen Sister Act. Just never got around to it. Sister Act 2 is more enjoyable. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I'll bear that in mind. (laughs) It was kind of a a family favorite, that one. Uh, Okay. Not eligible for nominations for this episode, uh, because I was pretty sure we've both seen it, was A Few Good Men. Which is a great movie, but yes, we have both seen it. We we have both seen it. (laughs) So just want to throw that out there. That also came out this year. Some other notable events for 1992. On June 19th was the release of Batman Returns, which I didn't realize this, but it was the first movie to use Dolby Digital 6-channel stereo sound. Really? Yeah. Well, no, I guess that. Which is now an industry standard for sound. December 11th, of course, is important because it's me. December 11th, 1992 is the release of The Muppet Christmas Carol. No, straight up the best Christmas movie of all, well... One of the best Christmas movies of all time. I can't quite say best, but it is a wonderful movie. If you've not seen it, guys, 
go watch it. Let, let's finally watch this. Yeah, okay? you should finally watch that right away for sure. Uh, this year also marked the film debut of directors Ang Lee. Which we'll see a little later. That's right. He's going to come up uh, at the end of the season. And M. Night Shyamalan. For some reason, I, for a while, I was thinking The Sixth Sense was his first movie. That would have not come out at the end of this decade. Yeah. Um, this was a, a much smaller film, and I don't, the name of it escapes me right now, but go look it up. It was, it's interesting. It was much more Indian focused. Okay. Other film debuts this year Jack Black, Daniel Craig, Penelope Cruz, Jamie Foxx, Will Smith, and Hilary Swank, who played a minor role in a little movie called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, yeah, that wasn't popular at all. Yeah. Uh, it actually, inspired anything. The, the, <laughs> the TV show that came later was a lot more popular than the yeah, movie. Yeah, that's I think. true. But yeah, anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there. See, this is very interesting. Now that we're going to do things that I like. I have memories of. I know it was tricky going compiling this not to like just name drop every movie that I'd recognized from 1992 <laughs> because there's a lot more of them now. Yeah, I mean that's we're getting to the age where suddenly movies were a thing that we look forward to at like 12 or 11 or 10 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and so it was like just because we've heard of it, okay, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're super important yeah. to the history of film. <laughs> so, so anyways, but I, I will always make exception for Jim Henson Productions. Yes. <laughs> So neither of us watched Unforgiven when it came out, but so what is we, this? We were a little young for this movie. <laughs> we were, yes, but other people may not have heard about it. So what is this movie? All right, Unforgiven is directed by Clint Eastwood and stars Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, and Richard Harris. Which do you recognize? Did you know who Richard Harris is? I'm no, my brain's not a thing. It's Dumbledore. Oh, the British guy in this movie is Dumbledore. Oh. British Bob. Yeah. Okay. Or English Bob. English Bob. Oh, yeah. English Bob. Yeah. Very different sorts of character. But anyway. And Gene Hackman, this is our first recurring actor. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. First time we've had an actor from a previous film. He was in The Decided Adventure, in case you you missed that episode. So, yeah. I think he's kudos to him. I think he's the only actor that appeared twice in, in two of our movies this season. Yes. Anyway, this is an R-rated revisionist Western, which I'll discuss that more in a minute. And just FYI, parents may not want to listen to the summary with kids nearby, given some of the graphic nature, but I'm not going to go into explicit detail. But if you don't want to have to explain certain things, then maybe hit pause. Anyway, this movie starts in the upstairs of a saloon in Big Whiskey, Wyoming, when a prostitute is attacked with a knife by her cowboy client. Her face is scarred as a result, and because the brothel owner demands financial restitution, the local sheriff, Little Bill Daggett, played by Gene Hackman, orders the guilty cowboy and his friend to give the brothel owner several horses. Outraged, this is the only punishment to be done. The prostitutes pool their resources to offer a bounty to kill the guilty cowboys. Word of this bounty spreads from Wyoming to a small farm in Kansas, where a young man, calling himself the Schofield Kid, visits Will Mooney, a former outlaw and murderer who is now trying to support two children after having been reformed by his recently departed wife. Will initially turns down the kid's invitation to partner up to hunt the bounty, reluctant to return the killing, but his farm is struggling. He eventually saddles up, recruits his friend and fellow ex-outlaw Ned Logan, played by Morgan Freeman, to come along and joins up with the kid to hunt the bounty. However, Sheriff Daggett runs Big Whiskey with a tight grip and is not the kind of man who will put up with bounty hunters overruling his authority. This is a color film, of course, because, well, I mean... Most things are. Most things are at this point, unless you're making a special exception. This isn't Schindler's List. 
Uh, the screen ratio is the standard widescreen, the wide widescreen of 2.39 over 1. The length is 2 hours and 10 minutes. It is rated R for language, violence, and a scene of sexuality. Um, the score here is, it's interesting. It's very, this is a dark story, but at least the score that I remember the most, I haven't, I thought about listening back more on the soundtrack, but most of it is kind of this quiet, meditative mm -hmm. music that just bridges scenes when they're like traveling. There's not a lot horseback. of music that I remember besides these traveling pieces. And it's, yeah, it runs largely just on the scene and the talking. And if there's something there, it's very unobtrusive. Yeah. There might be some that it's like underscoring some more dramatic moments, but very little of it. it yeah. It is very naturalistic in some ways. But it was composed by Lenny Nihas. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm saying his, that name right. But interestingly, he had a history of working with Clint Eastwood. He did several movies with him and was actually a jazz performer himself. Oh, really? Yeah. I would not have guessed that from the content of the music. No, but, it was much more folk, smooth. I mean, I guess the soothing sounds. That's but, true. But not the sort of musical accompaniment you'd expect for something this stark and hard-hitting. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, it came out. It was our... It's a Western in 1992. Was it well-known to do well at the time it came out? Actually, yes. It debuted at number one in the box office, a spot held for three weeks, and it had really long legs. It came out in, like, September, and then, thanks to its Oscar wins, it was in theaters for almost a year before it finally closed. See, that's what's different nowadays. Nothing lasts more than... Even the big stuff lasts, like, three, four weeks. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of that was, like, in, in big cities where it was probably lasted long. It was probably, in like, Los but still, Angeles. still, that's impressive. But yes, yeah, for sure. It was also, of course, a big critical success, and so just mentioned it won Oscars. It currently has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Which is very good. Mm -hmm. A couple of quotes I picked out here from Richard Corliss, uh, writing for Time. He said, Eastwood's meditation on age, reputes, courage, heroism, on all those burdens he has been carrying with such grace for decades. It's a nice quote. Yeah. I liked how uh, Desan Howe wrote for the Washington Post. He said it jumps adroitly between the macho and the anti-macho, the romantic and anti-romantic. And then at the end, he said, there's a price to killing we're being shown that never quite gets paid. Well, we'll get to that more, but it does really move from like things you expect from Western to things that are very kind of uh, different. From just so subversive to the Western. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This did get listed as one of Roger Ebert's great movies for his series of great movies lists that he did. Uh, it was nominated for nine Oscars. It won four of them, including, like we said, Best Picture, Best Director, Clint Eastwood. Also won Best Supporting Actor for Gene Hackman and Best Film Editing. So the people loved it then. What kind of impact did it have going forward? I mean, it's 30 years old now. Yeah. Well, for one thing, it did continue the a tradition of revisionist Westerns. Okay, so define that for us. Yeah. So I'm going to pull this off of Wikipedia, although I don't fully agree with some things that go that this article goes into. But Wikipedia calls revisionist Western a subgenre of the Western film. Okay. Quote, designated a post-classical variation of the traditional Western, the revisionist subverts the myth and romance of the traditional by means of character development and realism to present a less simplistic view of life in the, quote, Old West. While the traditional Western always embodies a clear boundary between good and evil, the revisionist Western does not. So it basically takes those kind of myths around the West, you know, the good guy, the bad guy, the black and white. 
Yeah. And it grays everything up. Makes it more, I guess they would argue, more accurate to history. Yeah. And the Western has been an important genre for film since the very beginning. Yeah. In 1903 is a famous Western movie called The Great Train Robbery. That is just about what it sounds like. (laughs) And lots of B-movies from Hollywood history were Westerns. The genre, from what I remember hearing, kind of took a downturn in the mid-70s. It probably had been lessening a little bit in impact before then because of the space race. And it doesn't seem like... the new age or new wave would much care about those sort of traditional no western and i've heard some people say that uh mel brooks's spoof of western blazing saddles oh, yeah. really did a number of people being able to take western seriously for a period of time <laughs> okay i can see that yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it does seem like again I, I i'm sure you could do a huge study on history of westerns in hollywood yeah it seems like a lot of the ones that were done in early 90s tended to be like this kind of hard-hitting revisionist Western thing. Mm-hmm. The next year, 1993, would see the movie Tombstone. Which you thought we were watching. Yeah, which is... <laughs> so, okay, yeah, true story, folks. When when we were putting together this list, and I saw the title Unforgiven, and it's like, oh, okay, 1992, I kind of remember seeing that, that one around. In my head, I was picturing the VHS cover for Tombstone, and I was thinking it was this movie, but it is not this movie. That's a completely different movie with... Um, this is the one with Sam Elliott. That's Wide Earp and the shooter of the OK Corral, that kind of stuff. It's another R hit, but that's from 1993, not, not, not 1992. But anyway. You know, it's interesting that this is our first actual Western. I think we passed up one or two of them on the way here. Yeah, we, we passed up particularly High Noon, which mm-hmm. was 1952. If we hadn't needed to watch Singing in the Rain, I probably would have advocated for High yeah. Noon because that is, it's a classic of the genre and for good reason. My one critique of the Revisionist Western article on Wikipedia is I think they apply this term a little too broadly. If you look at the like the list of Western Revisionist Western films that it lists, it goes yeah. all the way back to 1903 and the Great Train Robbery. I guess just because it focuses on bandits, essentially. Okay, so... Yeah, not everything that has some mixing of good and bad is revisionist. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm like. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> I guess my my other beef at it is that it does say it's a subsection of western, but I feel like I don't know. I feel like I've always seen a mix of good and bad guys in westerns. It's not. I know like the the classic Roy Rogers stuff is probably the have the white hat and the black yeah. hat. But I feel like the majority of Westerns has some sort of ambiguity. Going has some on. sort of, yeah, some sort of that and is less revisionist as like a movie like this. I yeah, feel this, is. This, one, this one's straight up in the camp of revisionist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, we can touch on that some yeah. more in a little bit. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of mention that. Are there more uh, specific influences this movie had? There was a Japanese adaptation made in 2013, set in Japan during the Meiji period, with the main character being a samurai instead of an ex cowboy bandit nice which i think is kind of fitting because our western the magnificent seven is a uh, adaptation of a japanese movie that came before it the seven samurai so there's long been this interesting interplay between the samurai and the cowboy yeah. and our two different countries myths and, and we're starting to get the point i guess where like influence is hard to tell because we're getting closer and closer to the present yeah, yeah. And nosferatu you got a hundred years to have it do something <laughs> exactly that's true okay so um Give us the rundown of like just awards and lists it's on. Like many of our films this season, this one was selected for preservation in the United States Film Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It was entered in that in 2004. It made the following American Film Institute lists, the following AFI lists, uh, 100 movies, number 98, 
Um, this 10th anniversary of their 100 movies list, it was bumped up to number 68. I had time to simmer, I guess. And uh, I guess Sink so. down into your consciousness. And people, <laughs> and people were like, yeah, this thing was really good. Um, and on their 10 top 10 list under the Western category, it was listed as number four, which, okay. again, given the number of uh, Western films that are out there, that's, uh, that's a pretty high ranking. Yeah. In 2013, the Writers Guild of America ranked the screenplay by David Webb Peebles for Unforgiven as the 30th greatest screenplay ever written. That's an impressive award. Yes, out of like 101 screenplays, I believe. And interestingly enough, Peebles, this writer, was also a co-writer of Blade Runner, our last movie. Which you did not plan, but... Yeah, I didn't even realize that until uh, quite a coincidence. It makes sense. There are some common themes between the two movies. I guess so. But, I mean, there's a lot of killing. <laughs> the violence. The that's violence. a common theme. Very different setting, though. Yes. So that's, that's impressive. Like I was saying, you don't look no meaner than hell, cold-blooded killer. Maybe I ain't. Yeah, well, Uncle Pete says you was the meanest son of a alive. And if I ever wanted a partner for a killing, you were the worst one. Mean and the best. On account of yours... You're as cold as the snow. You don't have no weak nerve nor fear. Pete said that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, he did. All right, so that's what people thought of it, the critics. But let's get to what we think about this. So, Tim, had you, besides thinking it was Tombstone, had you heard of this movie? <laughs> well, I thought I had. <laughs> I'm sure I had at some point. I, I always watch those AFI specials when oh, they yeah. were coming out, so I would have seen clips of it at that point. I'm not sure at what point, maybe at some other previous time, I realized I had confused these two movies, but... Anyway, I definitely not will remember this the distinction now. How about you? Had you heard about this one? I think it's one of those things that I'd heard about it as a movie. My grandpa used to watch, we go on Sundays, and he would always be watching some Western on Fox or whatever. So, like, I've been exposed to Westerns, but, like, they were just jumbled because I was a kid, and I see pieces, I never knew which was what. Mm. Obviously not this, because this would have been a little dark for Yeah, he probably was not playing when there yeah. were kids around. No, but... I had heard of it and knew it was Western, but knew almost nothing else. Yeah. I had not. Had you seen any Clint Eastwood? I've seen very little Clint Eastwood, actually. I mean, I felt a little bad about that because I felt in some ways knowing some of his history without having actually seen it. I felt like this was sort of a commentary on his own mythic character. And so I wish I had that insight to it. But no, I, when I was looking over his movies, I was like, I think maybe the only one I ever saw him in it was uh, Space Cowboys, <laughs> which is not a serious movie at all. I was, yeah, I had not but, much experience. I'd watched Changeling and yeah, the, I think that's about it. Yeah. I feel like there was some other something he directed that I recognized. Oh, um, the one uh, Sully, the one with Tom Hanks about the pilot. Oh, I watched that too. Yeah, yeah. that was a good movie. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Clint Eastwood is a big hole, I feel, in my film viewing he's, repertoire. He's very well respected as a director and an actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a pretty remarkable career. Well, let's go listen to what we thought after watching it last week. Okay. Honestly, it's hard to know what to think of this movie. It feels Western revisionist in some ways is going against cliches. It also kind of embraces certain ones like the reformed outlaw, the hotshot young whippersnapper that thinks he's hot stuff and then finds out that he isn't the corrupt lawman. Archetypes I feel like I've seen it elsewhere, but very rough and harsh landscape with although there's a couple of scenes that almost feel comedic with like how old the gunslingers are anyway nick what do you think 
Yeah, it's pretty dark. It's an interesting kind of, I don't know if morality plays right idea, but there's just a lot of sin being corrected with more sin. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a lot about how, moral, how people are struggling with their own moral compass, but everyone's just scarred and broken. In some ways, it was a sad movie to watch because the never breaking the cycle of sin. On the other hand, I found myself thinking multiple times that it was a beautiful movie because visually it was beautiful and sonically it was beautiful. I mean, the horse's hooves on the grass and the rain and even footstep sounds visually and, and aurally. It was enjoyable. So that's confusing to me. Yeah, I, I also I'm not sure what I think about the movie. I always want to root for somebody in a movie. And in this one, it was hard to know who to root for. Though, I mean, I leaned toward the guy that seemed to, you know, that had the kids that, you know, he was refusing whiskey and saying that was his old life and almost trying to convince himself and in some points that that was his old life. He was the only one who treated the women right and I almost got the sense that the reason he ended up with his wife was because she saw that he treated women right now of course he he admits to having killed women and children and stuff so I don't know I could just be making all that up but anyway I I did appreciate that this supposedly worst man of them all was the only one who seemed to really care It's been a week. We've had time to think about it. I think we both agree this is one of those movies that settles into you and it is almost better having watched and thought about than immediately after. Yeah. Yeah. You could kind of tell some of our conflicted feelings at the time after having watched it. And yeah, giving it some time to simmer really does help this one. There's two main things I think that we can pull out from this without doing too many spoilers. And there's a lot of stuff we could spoil that we won't. But the story is very morally ambiguous, or at least... All the characters are morally conflicted, in some ways confusing for the audience. Yeah, you often expect the characters to to come out really cool, but for the most part, up until like maybe the last scene, they really aren't. (laughs) Like, like these aren't men that are like cold-blooded killers. Although apparently they were at one time. Although Clint Eastwood says like, I was really just drunk most of the time. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) like when it comes down to it, a lot of these men like the one quote talked about being anti-machos yeah. because when it comes down to taking a life, no one really wants to. No, and or, I know everyone's scared about getting killed off themselves. There's very little, the machinizo doesn't last very long. No, like the sheriff character hates assassins, but he often does his bad stuff to people as assassins, almost, but uh-huh. in a different way. Normally when something's morally ambiguous, I don't like it. But I enjoyed this one, I think, because... I don't know if more ambiguous is the right word because everyone has morality and they're, it's like they're fighting. It's almost like the, what I want to do, I don't want to do. What I do, do is what I don't want to do. Like everyone's mm-hmm. looking for justice. Yeah. There's no a, one has the right way to do it. There's certainly an eye for an eye mentality going yeah. on and no one likes it, but like it seems to be the only way they know how to function. So why I think I enjoyed it having thought about it, is that there's a lot of food for thought about, it feels like everyone's trying to find the right thing to do. Most people don't, mm-hmm. but it feels like the movie would like there to be a right answer. I ain't going to hold it against her. She knew me back then. She knew what a no good son of a I was. 
You just ain't allowing that I've changed. You still realize I ain't like that no more. Well, you know, Will. Ain't the same, Ned. Claudia, she straightened me up, cleared me of drinking whiskey and all. Just because we're going on this killing, that don't mean I'm going to go back to being the way I was. Like, everyone's just stuck. Yeah. But the idea that you're stuck means that something's wrong and something's right, and we're trying to get to the right. But the right is so confusing with all the different angles. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's a lot to unpack, and we can't get into the details here. Well, I mean, I guess one thing we can touch on that is for some reason why this works as revisionist for us that maybe some other methods wouldn't. There's this biographer that ca- travels. There's this one side character who I didn't really talk about. Yeah. He really is a supporting act character. And he's almost more for theme than plot. Yeah. This guy who claims to be a great gunslinger and there's this biographer who goes with them until Gene Hackman, the sheriff basically kind of lures him away and is like, no, no, no let me tell you about what really happened. And the biographer's like, oh, really? I mean, he- Being a good shot, I mean, quick with a pistol. I don't do no harm, but it don't mean much next to being cool-headed. A man who will keep his head, not get rattled under fire. Like as not, he'll kill you. But if the other fellow is quicker and fires first, then he'll be hurrying and he'll miss. It ain't so easy to shoot a man anyhow, you know, especially if somebody's shooting back at you. I mean, that'll just flat rattle some folks. (laughs) So there's this theme of the West... The view people see of it and the, how it really is. Yeah, this is a wild west. The way Roger Ebert put it in his great movies article is that this is the West at the tail end of being the wild west. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not civilized at all yet. Yeah, it well, well, well it's not. not at all. It's not yet, but at the same time, a lot of the legends have already come and gone. Okay, yes. So a lot of the the legends are being domesticated, essentially. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood's character, Mill Money, is this former outlaw who has gotten married and been reformed and is trying to make it as a farmer. Even the sheriff who says he used to be a gunslinger of some sort is trying to build Your himself house. a house. Everyone's trying to reform, but no one quite knows how to make it work. And despite the bravada that's that like the biographer is asking these questions about well, how did, which man did you kill first? How, how, how important is it to be the fastest draw and all this kind of like Western legend stuff. It never really like fully repudates that or denies that. I'm trying to figure out what I'm like the way some revisionist stories would be, would be to completely trash the thing that yeah. the, the genre that they're revising. Some people would complain that, um, Rian Johnson did that with The Last Jedi. Okay, yeah. I think that's up for debate. But that tends to be the, the downside of some of these movies that are really... Deconstructionist? De- yes, deconstructing a genre. And uh, this one does some of that, but not completely, and not in like an attempt to destroy. It doesn't feel yeah, like... Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's deconstructing to just blow it up, but it's more like it's pushing the realism to examine... Almost what's the space between the legend and a real person? Yeah. Or like, what, what are the actual consequences? Like, one of the big things is, what's the actual consequences of killing a person? Mm-hmm. Like, morally, spiritually, all these things. Like, or just civilly. What's the consequence if someone, if you kill someone or if someone dies, what happens? It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. Yeah. Well, I guess they had it coming. We all have it coming. I wonder if that is because this is done by Clint Eastwood, who, again, 
a lot of his famous Western characters were kind of this, I think in the, his, the three movies he did with Sergio Leone, mm-hmm. I think he's called the man with no name and he's this bounty hunter character, kind of like the Mandalorian. Okay. Yeah. Um, but like a bounty hunter who's killing. So it's essentially feels like that character is a lot like who this character Bill, Will Bill Mooney Money is. was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for, so or Will Money. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I read that at the end of the credits, which we didn't set through all the end credits, but I guess the very last one is in memory of Sergio and another director that Clint Eastwood had worked with. So it feels in that way that gives this movie some authenticity that someone from the outside doing a, a deconstruction of Western genre wouldn't have the same level of respect. Yeah, he respects the genre. And you can tell, I mean, it's a Western. It's not trying to not be, but it just it plays against type in interesting ways, but not in... But not completely against type, so yeah. Yeah, like the one quote, it jumps between the macho and the anti-macho. Like, there's scenes that are like, oh, this is like full-on Western. Other times, like, that is... I would never normally expect that. Yeah. Another character that it feels like he's kind of cast against type, Morgan Freeman. Yes. Who we expect at this point to be, you know, kind of your wise, kindly, grandfatherly, like, gentleman. This one, he's kind of a sleazeball. He is kind of a sleazeball. Like, uh, he's a good friend, but he's a sleazeball. Yeah. His only interest in his wife is in the sexual gratification, and he has no qualms about recruiting a, a prostitute once they get to the saloon. Can I transition then briefly to the R rating? Yes. So, the R rating is interesting. Because on one hand, visually, outside, the initial scene is very... Is the, where very the intense. Is where the scene of sexuality yeah. comes from, yeah. Outside that, visually, it's not very... Explicit. Yeah. Now, even language-wise, it's explicit. Yeah, true. I mean, look, when it starts with a prostitute getting um, attacked, sca- by attacked, and, a client, yeah. and then there's a murder. I mean, there's going to be dark. Yeah. But I appreciate that. It doesn't seem like Clint Eastwood wanted to. He didn't care about exploiting anything visually. He just wanted to tell the story. Yeah. And I think I appreciate that a lot. Mm-hmm. Nothing about the story feels sensationalized. And when or, you, yeah. And some of the characters, I mean, are prostitutes, but there's never anything visually seen that I remember. I don't think there actually was any nudity. No. Which is something that uh, this has over Blade Runner. Yes. And again, a different director could have made a very different excuse for it. I mean, there's no reason you couldn't do it just because. Yeah. But yeah. it seemed like that's not the point. Yeah. This is a much more restrained movie in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's important scenes that they just kind of skip over. I mean, everyone. Oh, well. that's true. Yeah. Like, it's a very interesting what they show and what they decide to not bother showing. Mm-hmm. Because it is very focused on just what do these characters do in the situations they're put in? Yeah. They really not care about any of the other stuff. It's yeah. just how do you make choices when there's no good choice to make? That's a good way to put it. We talked about the music being kind of yeah. the, this kind of light. The music and some of the landscapes. Well, although, again, the landscapes, is, again, are not like sensationalized like yeah. you know we've talked a lot about on um, a lot of these movies about how visually arresting they are yeah this one is much more straightforward yeah it is very straightforward the, yeah. o- the only like visual shots that that really seem to stand out to me are kind of the bookends of the movie the, those are the most like beautiful western shots yeah it's a sunset everything's basically silhouette they're the same shot you know i'm not going to go into details about what's on them there's some text that kind of gives some prologue and some postlude from the perspective of not the main character, but from like his mother-in-law. Uh, the, well, yeah, his mother-in-law, his, his dearly departed wife's perspective, which is wild. But anyway, but yeah, that's like the only visual like start. But I mean, again, it's it's a very naturalistic feeling movie. But it's a very 
elegant move in some ways. Yeah, and I think some of the that calming music, some of the the scenes of the beautiful scenes of the landscape, even some of the comedic moments that mm-hmm. I talked about earlier were like Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman are these old guys that are really past their prime trying to do this. Clint this Eastwood stuff. can't get on a horse to save his life. <laughs> and it's unexpected, but like you need some of that relief, that comedic relief yeah. to break up some of that tension. And I, I just, I appreciate that a lot. Also, kudos to Clint Eastwood. He's been playing an old man in movies for a long time now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ain't hardly been in the saddle myself in a while. This old horse is getting even with me for the sins of my youth. In my youth, before I met your dear departed ma, I used to be weak and given to mistreating animals. Come on. All right, so Tim, uh, this is question time. Do you have a question? I do. Okay. Uh, So again, without going into too spoiler territory, this may be opening a can of worms, but is this movie pro or anti Second Amendment? Hmm. Because Sheriff Daggett has this... Uh, this no guns in town rule. Yes. Well, will, basically because he doesn't want bounty hunters. Yeah. He will confiscate any guns coming into town until you leave the county, essentially. Yeah. But does that really help solve the crime problems or or not? Well, the problem is no one actually listens to the rule, I think, is the problem. So I'm not sure that's even a second amendment. That's just what do you do with criminals. I mean, because they're I mean, disobeying. I mean, isn't that kind of the whole point with like gun rights, though, anyway? Well, I know, but the sheriffs will carry them around at least, you yeah, know, and yeah. it doesn't help them either. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it's either, actually. I think in some ways it... It goes along with the morally ambiguous yeah, nature I think of the so, movie. yeah, it doesn't, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Okay, we kind of asked this after the thing, but I'll ask you, is there a hero in this movie? Yes. Can you say more without spoiling? Um, even though he's a flawed hero, I still consider Clint Eastwood probably the most morally upright character in this. Okay. Again, flawed is what he's doing the right thing. Questionable. Yeah. But I do think for the most part, he's the one the audience will want to root for. Okay. At least that's my perspective. So you you do think that despite his flaws, he's still meant to be the one we care, that we want and then is he, the whole movie's called Unforgiven. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these guys are just getting past their, their stuff. Their, their stuff. Their, their history. Is it a happy ending for him? Happy would be a little strong of a word. Is it a satisfying ending for him? Yeah. Okay. okay I, we'll leave it there without spoiling anything else. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to have a debate with someone who's seen the movie before, but I won't have that here. <laughs> okay. Okay. So that's encouraging to all you guys who are tempted, like, I, I need a good ending. I think you could say it's... It's a satisfying yeah. ending. Again, I, at least... It's not ambiguous like Blade Runner. No. Or it's not depressing like the end of Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> that one was... Well, that one that was an empty victory. Empty victory, yeah. The way I felt Pyric? Like. Is that the fancy word? Pyric, yeah. I guess... I mean, I guess you could say this is a Pyric victory because, I mean, there are losses along the way, but... It doesn't feel as hollow, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, it, to analyze why does it feel as hollow would be too deep of a dive yep. for this podcast. Okay, my next question for you, Nick. Okay. Would Gene Hackman's character in The Poseidon Adventure get along with Gene Hackman's character in this movie? Yes. Both are about making their way in the world by their sheer willpower. I can't abide them. You see them in the tavern, you know? Tramps and drunk teamsters and crazed miners sporting their pistols and acting like they were bad men, but without any sand or character. Not even any bad here. 
I do not like assassins. Assassins. Or men of low character. Though little Bill Daggett might beat up the Reverend. Yeah, probably. <laughs> as long as the Reverend stayed out of his way, they might just be fine. Yeah. They just haven't. don't make fun of his house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Makes sense. All right, Tim. Walk me through like a universal Disney ride of Unforgiven. You know, it's funny you actually, you mentioned that. Oh, is there one? Well, no, but it was considered, actually. Really? Yeah, let me look that up. Okay, that that that's just off the top of my head. I apparently need to go work in Hollywood as the idea, man. Yeah, apparently the film was planned to be used as a theme for Six Flags Great Adventures' then-upcoming roller coaster, but market research showed that people found it to be too dark of a theme, so the ride's theme was changed to Viper. Which, uh, <laughs> wow, come right, Unforgiven. <laughs> <laughs> this R-rated. Well, you know what? 90s was a weird time for R-rated movies because I remember they used to make toys of like Terminator 2 and Robo- yeah. RoboCop. And these these are really violent movies. You don't need to be making toys for yeah, kids yeah. for them. But it, they were all over the place. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what was what they were thinking. Sell toys, I guess. <laughs> and kids watch it anyways, I guess. Yeah. But unfortunately. But so anyways, walk us through this Disney Universal ride. Okay. So I guess it's, it's a little different from Roller Coaster. Like um, it's a small world after all. Yeah. Uh, I feel like you'd be in... <sighs> what were we sitting? Like just a thing or does it look like a coach or a horse? or what? Do, or I guess it had to look like a stagecoach. Okay. And maybe, maybe the, you're in like a little stagecoach with a animatronic version of English Bob. Okay, English Bob. And he's like shooting things. And so he's, he's I, we didn't talk much about English Bob. He's English, a side character, yeah. And he loves the queen. Um, <laughs> and he, he's, he likes to make fun of Americans. He tries to get a rise out of everyone. I think essentially so someone will duel him and he can show off his something. fast draw or something. Yeah. He's a strange character. But it'd be interesting to him and you'd have like Sheriff Daggett would like pop out of the, the saloon <laughs> to like shoot at you. And I don't, I don't know, maybe you'd even... Could you could you ha- carry a gun with you and I do sh- shooting things? I was thinking about that. You know, there's like, there's a Buzz Lightyear ride at Disney yep. that's kind of like that. So maybe, except I feel like... Uh, How do you get some of the anti-macho in this though? What you would have to do is instead of like getting a high score, if you actually hit one of these things, like you'd have to have some, they'd like die and blood come out and you'd have women screaming in the background. And at the end, you'd get like your death counts of like, these are all the people you killed. And like you walk through and there's like a, there's like a giant tombstone, all these ghostly faces of the people you killed. And 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 like have, uh, have like animatronic wives that are crying (laughs) over them. And maybe, or maybe even some, maybe you could accidentally kill some of the prostitutes along okay. with them and you know then they're maybe as you're exiting the ride they're shaking their fists i will get you for this so it's like so it's basically like pirates of the caribbean but realistic yeah essentially <laughs> okay <laughs> all right well that's uh they call heartwarming it, they call it a dark ride for a reason <laughs> so it's coming to disney in 2027 actually i guess no. it would still be great flags because this is a warner brothers movie okay. so still okay. or six flags six flags that's a great, <laughs> great flag <laughs> six flags great adventure all right so tim the verdict did we like this movie while watching it and afterwards, I wasn't sure I liked it, but like we said, it, there's something about this one that when you sit with it for a while, you really can respect a lot of the decisions that they made. And for that reason, yeah, I would say, at the very least, I appreciated this movie. I would say I appreciate it, but I think it's something higher than, like, I think we said that for Blade Runner. 
Mm. I feel like I appreciate plus. Like, I'll go for. I, I enjoyed it. I'll go with that. I did enjoy it. Now, would I recommend it for everyone? No. Yeah, you have to know your audience. Yeah, dude. Like, this is a case where, like, if you like ideas and themes, if you don't mind the darkness, it's right up your alley. Yeah. But the setup is dark. Yeah, there is language that's uh, that you would not want your your children to hear. Most even the violence. I mean. There's a couple scenes where someone's getting beat up, but like the even the shootouts, not overly bloody now, necessarily. Outside the initial scene, most of it's just the language and the way they the themes. Yeah, they treat violence in a a good way. I, they do. I think. It's going to sound weird. In some ways, it's a life affirming movie, in the mm. sense that like it matters. Like life mm. matters, and it's never an easy thing to, to kill a person. Yeah, and there's consequences. Yeah, that's true. So I think I did enjoy it, especially sitting on it. And I would recommend to anyone who has that threshold of the topic's not going to bother me. That is our episode, episode eight. Please subscribe to us on the various podcatchers, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. If for some reason this is the first episode you've tuned into, um, welcome. Um, but uh, <laughs> we'd love to have you subscribed so you can listen to uh, more. There's just a few episodes left for the season, but there may be more stuff after that. And please, I'd love to have you email say, hey, we watched this movie, you were right, or we watched this movie, and why did you make us watch this movie? Get a hold of us at dealrolltrains at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Indeed. Next up is 2002. We are watching Gorsese's Gangs of New York. That's right. I don't know very much about this one no, at all. Almost so. nothing. So it'll yeah, be another. We know it's an Oscar winner, and it came out the year I graduated high school. And there's Leonardo DiCaprio <sighs> because it's, it's Gorsese. That's right. <laughs> all right. All right. Until then, uh, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.